as you can see on the slide here, we're going to be in Exodus chapter three and four tonight. And I sent out the uh, uh, handout. So if you have that, you'll be able to follow along there as well. I have a couple of maps that I'm going to show you as we look at these couple of chapters. Um, I want to show the first map uh, straight up, though. Uh, when we think about how the book of Exodus divides itself, we said last week that uh, it's basically in Egypt and at Sinai. Now, the question that we're going to talk about a little bit tonight is, where is Sinai? On this particular map, it's all the way down here in the peninsula between Midian and Egypt. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to show you that uh, that's an uncertainty. Uh, as you read the text closely, it might be another location. But while Israel's in Egypt, uh, we're in the middle of chapters one through six, which is kind of the prelude to the book, sets everything up. And then you get into the plagues and then the departure from Egypt in chapters 14 and 15 and the first Passover. And then part two is where they are stationary for a while at Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb, that, that we'll see in a couple of moments. And as they arrive at Sinai, they are given the law. And in chapters 20 through 24, you have not only the Ten Commandments, but some sundry laws as well. And then interestingly enough, the rest of the book of Exodus, chapters 25 through 40, is about the instructions or blueprints for the building of the tabernacle, that portable worship center that can go with them while they are traveling. And uh, the pattern of it is quite interesting because it sets up uh, a courtyard and then a holy place and then the Holy of Holies. And of course, the Ark of the Covenant will eventually go into the Holy of Holies as well. So all of this is something that will have echoes later in the Old Testament and into the New Testament as well. And thus our uh, title is Echoes from Exodus because what we're seeing in this book <coughs> does show up in a variety of different places. So what we wanna do today is take a look at chapters three and four. And in these uh, two chapters, uh, you can break this down into three parts where God reveals himself to Moses after Moses has this encounter with God. He tries every angle. That's not to be angel. That's a typo there. Tries every angle to get out of this commission to uh, go to, before Pharaoh and demand the release of um, the Israelites from Egypt. Finally, Moses will get on board um, after he runs out of excuses. So that's really chapters three and four in a nutshell. Uh, but what we're going to see here in these two chapters is the beginning of a very artful combina combination of two different sources. So I've mentioned this a couple of times in the first two weeks. It is believed that Exodus was not written by one person but it is a combination uh, from a variety of different sources. The section that we are in right now is considered to be uh, come from uh, the uh, Yahweh and uh, the Elohim sources. So what you're gonna find is even though in our English Bible, it translates God, there is a mixture of names for God 
in these passages here, one being Yahweh, which we will be introduced to in a couple of moments, and then the other is Elohim, which uh, is a different source that uh, comes into the text. There's not consistency in the name of God in the book of Exodus. There's a uh, moving back and forth between different names. And as you see here on the screen, that is the beginning of bumping into little details um, of how the Exodus came to be as a, uh, a written material and how the whole Pentateuch or Torah uh, or law, what, they're all synonyms really, the first five books of the Old Testament, how it came to be as well. So I uh, just want to introduce that and, and have you put your radar up a little bit as we kind of look through this text, uh, that you're going to see some things here that you'll go, huh, I wonder why that is. And uh, we'll try to poke around a little bit and see if we can hit some suggestions of why it looks the way it does. So before we get into that new material, is there any questions, comments, insights, um, that you want to make from the past week. I just had something real quick because, um, you know, Jesus says, uh, refers to this as the book of Moses. Do you think that it was called that at the time? That and I, I'm not sure why I, you're saying there's two authors, you think? Well, I hate to tell you this, there's probably four different sources. <laughs> uh, there is. Um, it is, it is, um, it is tradition to attribute this to Moses, and there is uh, the idea behind it is Moses as the central character uh, that produces all the action. Um, what you'll find in the first five books of the Bible, there are different elements of it that Moses could not have written. The most obvious one being at the end of, book, of the book of Deuteronomy, uh, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't write about his own death. And that's there at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you meant that, this Exodus chapter. Well, I'm, what I'm saying is there's these sources are found through the whole uh, Pentateuch and Torah. So in other words, even though traditionally within evangelical churches anyways, um, it is suggested that Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, which by the time you get to Deuteronomy, you can see that it's impossible. He didn't write about his own death, number one. Number two, it's interesting at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it says, and uh, Moses was buried and we don't know where, Okay. And the idea behind that is a long period of time has passed because if it was only two weeks that had passed, you know where Moses was buried. But if hundreds of years have passed and the editor makes the comment that we don't know where Moses is buried, it suggests that uh, this has been a compilation of materials that has been built up over a course of time. I think that'll become more apparent a little bit as we get into these couple of chapters here, it shouldn't rock anyone's world. Um, I've, I've mentioned a couple times in some other, um, some other studies that we've done in the Old Testament that one of the best resources there is out there is the Jewish study Bible of the Old Testament. 
And the Jewish Study Bible, which is written all by Jewish people, they're the first ones that bring up this idea that says this, this wasn't written by Moses. This came much later. That, so this isn't a Christian thing that's being imposed back on the Old Testament. It is actually comes from the Jewish people themselves who reverence Moses as the first great prophet and a mediator for the nation. But um, it, you know, if there are plenty of people that still kind of think of a singular authorship, but there are difficulties to get over. Um, and you'll see some of those here in a little bit. Uh, but if, if that's okay with you, that's fine. Um, the point is, I'm just kind of showing you that the Bible isn't as simple as a Sunday school lesson. It's, um, it's, a, it's a difficult book. And sometimes it presents challenges to us to figure out how this came about and how it came to us in the form that it is. So um, we're doing this on Wednesday night. I would never do this on a Sunday morning uh, because that's a different um, audience. But I think all of us, the reason you're on here and the reason you're here is because you want to learn a little bit more about the, the text and some of the things that go on behind it. And so that's kind of why I use Wednesday night to introduce some of these things, maybe that you've never heard of, and that's okay. And you don't even have to believe it. Uh, but I just want you to know this is the discussions that are in uh, biblical scholarship. And so when you run across it, or if somebody mentions something along the way, it's not something new. It's not something that's been made up recently. These discussions have gone on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, so this is wrestling with the text and, and trying to understand the different influences that produced for us the scriptures as we have it. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay. All right. So thank you for the question. That's great. Okay, let's move on. So here's, uh, here's the first thing that's kind of interesting. So let's begin in chapter three. <clears throat> it says here, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he fled, led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Okay, let's stop right there for a moment. So we were introduced uh, to Moses fleeing to Midian back in chapter two. And when he comes to the rescue of these women that were being accosted at a well, these seven daughters of Jethro, uh, he will eventually marry Zipporah up in verse 21, uh, chapter two. Uh, and so Jethro is his father-in-law, and that's stated right here in verse one. But it's interesting that he is named in chapter two as Ruel. Take a look at verse 18 of chapter two. It says, when the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? Verse 20, and where is he, Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? So in chapter two, he is named Ruel. And in chapter three, he is named Jethro. Now, here is something that will also kind of throw you off a little bit. Um, 
he is mentioned um, uh, by the name of Hobab, Hodab, uh, Bab rather. And I will turn, you don't have to bother turning, but I want you to listen uh, to the book of Judges chapter four, uh, verse 11. And in Judges 4, 11, it's interesting. And here's where Bible translators try to smooth things out to make it consistent. So it says in verse 11 of Judges 4, now Heber was the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobad, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent. Oh, okay, He's all, it's, this is his brother-in-law. Uh, that's where you got to look at the footnotes of your Bible. Uh, there's a note there that says, really, father-in-law. The, the, the translation is father-in-law. Um, even though they try to smooth this out in the translation, because the translators recognize an inconsistency here. Here's a guy who has been named three names, Ruel, Jethro, and Hobab. Okay, so the question comes, well, why is he called all these different names? Well, could these be nicknames? I'm, um, uh, you know, uh, Bud is online with us. His real name's William. We could call him Willie. Uh, we could call him Billy. <laughs> we could call him Bud. No, no, we see all the hands. In other words, it could be that there's some variations going on of what he's known by, or, or these could be different names because they are not the product of one writer. And it's not like it's one writer trying to play tricks on us. What it is suggesting is maybe there is a combination of different versions of the story. So um, if, if you have a, a, a given name by your family and you have a nickname of some sort and you have two different people telling a story, one source might suggest uh, that they use a given name given by mom and dad, where somebody else who has a different perspective will use the nickname. Does that make sense? So scholars suggest that these little clues here might be giving to us a suggestion that this is a combo document and here in chapter two, it's referred to as Ruel. In chapter three, it's Jethro. And both could be correct depending upon the community that they came from. So this point right here, uh, down in the middle, biblical scholars often refer to different versions as traditions because they were created, nurtured, and passed on by distinct Israelite communities. So think about this for a moment. When the nation of Israel finally settled into the land, how many, how many different tribes were there? 12 different tribes. Now, we often think of that like um, states, I guess, the United States. Um, but these are much more distinct cultural communities that develop. So what you have, so Estes native land in Yugoslavia, 
divided into different areas. And these different areas have their own language sometimes. They have their own customs sometimes. They have their own outlook on some things. So these 12 tribes, and this is what will cause a little bit of conflict later with the two southern tribes, specifically with the tribe of Judah, and the northern tribes, they're kind of at odds with each other, and they will eventually split into Israel and Judah. These different traditions can tell the same stories, but they have their own nuances. Does that make sense? So these nuances can use different names or, uh, or might emphasize different things that a different community might not. So these communities um, are more isolated from each other, these tribes, than what we often think of. I think we think of uh, the tribes kind of being like counties within the same state, rather than thinking of it as states or geographical areas. So you have the Northeast, you have the Midwest, you have the West Coast, you have the South, and they all have their own flavor. They all have their own specialized food. They all have their own idioms. They all have different uh, um, vernacular that they will use and uniqueness of things that they like. And so many scholars think that this is starting to show right very early in Exodus, a combination of taking different traditions and bringing them together. And so an editor is actually taking these different stories that have been passed on for hundreds and hundreds of years, okay, before they're written down and combining them and allowing the differences to stand, which is interesting enough. I already showed you here in Judges how the NIV translators tried to smooth over the Judges 4.11. The, the Jews never felt compelled to do that, to smooth it over. They will allow these differences to stand because for them, certainty is not the most critical thing. The tradition is. The story is. See, we as Westerners, we're so concerned about, we're so linear and logical. Well, that doesn't make sense. It disagrees with one another. Uh-oh, it's upsetting my faith. It shouldn't. It didn't bother the Jews um, to be able to tell the story, hear the story, recite the story, repeat the story. And they allow some of those contradictions to go ahead and, ahead and stand. It's okay. So whatever brought these traditions together, um, they felt that preserving the story was more important than trying to iron out some of the disagreements but in the details. That makes sense to everybody? I, this goes against your grain as a Westerner. This goes against your grain as an American. But the Bible's not a Western book. It's not an American book, okay? It's a very ancient Near Eastern book. And it has a whole bunch of different dynamics than what, what we find within our writings. That makes sense to everybody? Okay. Questions, comments? Well, couldn't it be looked at as different members of a family telling the same story in different ways? Yep. Because yep. I know if you've got a story 
from any one of my three, well, the three of us, mm-hmm. my sisters and I, it would be different. Yep. Even though we were there and did the same thing. But here's the difference. Okay. The three of you have different versions of the same event. Which right. one's right? Well, probably not any one of you is right until you get all three perspectives. In other words, depending upon how right. you look at the circumstance, each of you brings something to the table in that in Correct. the telling of that story. And I think that's what's happening here too, is the different uh, stories. Hi, can I help you? Pardon me? No, that's not tonight, it's on Tuesday nights. Okay, thank you, no problem. <clears throat> So that was a guy that was asking about an AA meeting going on tonight. So, <laughs> yeah, we could switch, you know. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so any, I think you're right on there, Shelly, that the three of you will tell the story of a, a family circumstance differently. What makes that different? Well, maybe your age makes a difference on how you tell it. Maybe where you were at the time makes a difference on how you tell it. Yeah. Um, all that type of thing. So, and that's what's playing in here. That's what I'm trying to say. Right. Okay. All right, let's go on. Okay, as if I haven't uh, bothered you enough on Jethro's name. Um, notice it says here, in verse uh, one, they came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, Horeb is mentioned here, mentioned in chapter 17, mentioned in chapter 33, and a bunch of times in the book of Deuteronomy. However, later in the book of Exodus, and I'll just turn to one of these, you can look at the other passages if you want at another time, it, it, its name changes to uh, Sinai. So in chapter 16, verse one, it says, the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. So in uh, this chapter, chapter 16, verse one, and again in chapters 19 and verse 34, this location where uh, Moses receives the law is called Sinai, and that probably is the more popular name, Mount Sinai, okay? Um, it's an interesting detail that, that, again, raises the question, well, where is this Sinai? So let me go back to this, okay, to this map. So it was believed that Mount Sinai is down here uh, in the Sinai Peninsula, okay? Now notice here on this map where Midian is, okay? Over here, okay, now that's what we were just talking about with Moses, he's a, uh, and Jethro being a priest of Midian. Now, this is the more traditional spot uh, because this is where uh, the 
uh, St. Catherine's Cathedral was built to celebrate the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. However, okay, we're going to fast forward here for a second. Now, I want you to notice here, it says here, the St. Catherine's Monastery down here, and the traditional site of Mount Sinai. But on this map, it is believed that Horeb is over here. You'll see here, this is Saudi Arabia. And at the time, it was called Midian. All right. So it's not down here in the Sinai Peninsula. It's actually over on the east here uh, at a place called Horeb. So, all right, which is it? Well, let's piece that together. Let me go back to this for a second. <clears throat> So when it says here that Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. If the traditional spot for Mount Sinai is down in the Sinai Peninsula, it would mean that Moses, who was watching the sheep over in Midian, would have had to travel north, go all the way around, and come down between 75 and 100 miles with a flock of sheep to tend them. Well, if he took those sheep 100 miles, he would no longer have a flock of sheep, okay? So that caused some of the uh, biblical scholars to say, well, that doesn't make any sense. If, if Moses is in Midian, he would sh uh, shepherd the sheep in Midian. That's where they would go to eat. Now, here's a fascinating thing. So I want you to keep your thumb here and go over all the way to the New Testament to the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul uses a lot, I mean, a lot of echoes from um, the Old Testament, all the way from Hagar and Sarah uh, to circumcision, uh, to the land of the promise and the law and all these type of things. And it says in chapter four, verse 25, as he is trying to convince these um, Galatians that uh, they shouldn't go back to the law, that they should, that they should keep, excuse me, their freedom in Christ. Come to verse 24, he's using Hagar and Sarah as figurative uh, metaphors. And verse 24 says, these things are being taken figuratively. So he tells us right up that he's using this, uh, these two individuals as figurative language. The women represent two covenants. Now, a covenant is the same thing as a treaty um, that God makes with Abraham. And it says one covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in where? Arabia. Okay, let me go back to the map here. More modern uh, term is called Saudi Arabia. Okay, Saudi Arabia. So, even 
Paul is associating Mount Sinai with being in Arabia rather than in, uh, in the Sinai Peninsula. He goes on, now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But Jerusalem, that is above, is free, and she is our mother. And then he goes on and he quotes out of the book of Isaiah and, and some other things. My point here is Paul seemed to think that Mount Sinai, called Mount Horeb, was on the east side of the Red Sea in Midian. So what's fascinating here, you can go back to uh, Exodus 3, in Paul's day, um, he was associating this with Midian. You say, well, what's the point? What difference does it make? Well, this is the type of thing that people go, well, the Bible doesn't have any inconsistencies. Well, I've showed you two within the first verse of chapter three here. Um, so it, it's to help us to understand how the Bible came together. And we are to take the story as a whole. Now, a fascinating thing in terms of why Moses or the editors of Exodus would use Sinai later in the book of Exodus is right here. Um, that the Hebrew word for bush, which is about to come in chapter three, where, um, where Moses meets God, the Hebrew word is sene, which sounds a lot like Sinai. So possibly what it could be is Mount Horeb is the actual location, but it is called Mount Sinai because of its association with the burning bush. That makes sense everyone? So Sinai, Sine, is very close to the Hebrew word for bush, Sine. And that might be one reason why the name changed. Is this bugging you guys, or is it insightful? What'd you say? Well, it's confusing because we like everything to be A to B to C to D. Again, it bugs us because of the way we are wired in the way we associate um, things very linear, linear and straightforward, or at least that's what we think. What this is telling us is that the Bible also uses, and don't take this word the wrong way, it uses propaganda to help the people be convinced that God met Moses in this moment, and that this is what led to their freedom, and thus the Passover becomes one of the central festivals of, of Judaism. Okay. All right. Questions, comments? It actually helps make sense of it because coming out of um, a real legalistic background, you always wondered these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then people do, uh, well, pastors a lot of times will do jumping jacks to try to get them to harmonize. And it had always struck me to go, why is, why is it so difficult to try to make these things harmonize rather than understanding that different traditions reflect 
the story in different ways. And that's okay. We do it all the time. So you read a novel about Abraham Lincoln or George Washington or Benjamin Franklin, and you're being given an author's perspective of a person's life. Okay. Some of these things are certainly true. They can be verified through other documentation. Some of them just might simply be um, observations that the author thinks explains other things. Um, so, you know, you always have to conjecture. keep that in mind. Yeah, it's conjecture, right. So, all right, let's keep going. So we'll move past this map. So here's another interesting thing here. So let's keep reading. Verse two. So I don't know if we're going to get to chapter four tonight. That's for sure. Um, it says here, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. So what's interesting here is um, this is a, a technical term. It's called a theophany. The burning bush represents God. God speaks from this burning bush. Um, what might be an association here is when you go back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 17, God appears in for, in the form of fire there as well. So if you remember the story, God is going to cut a covenant or a treaty with Abraham. He puts the uh, two halves of the animal, one on one side, one on the other. He puts uh, Abraham into a divine uh, sleep. And then he passes through these two pieces of the animal as a fiery pot. And Later in the book of Exodus, the way God will represent himself will be by the pillar of fire uh, after the, um, the people are in the wilderness and, and, and they're on the move toward the promised land. So fire becomes a very important theme or motif in the Old Testament. In this case here, this fire, because it represents um, the presence of God, um, suggests that it wasn't just a literal fire, but it was something that encompassed the, uh, the uh, theophany of God, the presence of God to Moses. And um, that's why it doesn't burn up. The fire doesn't go out because it represents the very presence of God. Now, scholars have debated long and hard about why the uh, uh, why in the story the bush does not burn up. Uh, some suggest that it anticipates the plague stories where uh, some of the natural uh, properties uh, uh, of creation are suspended at times. And this is a case uh, in point there. There's an ancient Jewish commentator by the name of Philo who suggests that the fire represents ultimately the people of God, which is Israel, not being consumed under the pressure of Egyptian slavery. Again, that's conjecture too. So that was, but that's how Jews often look at the scripture. They tease it out. What does this represent? Does it represent something deeper than what you see on the surface? 
Now, what's interesting here, when we think of this as a bush, um, the word sene uh, for bush can also be translated tree. And some commentators think that this might actually be more of a tree than it was a bush, uh, because later uh, what we see is in the tabernacle, there's the depiction of, um, of the uh, tabernacle, in the tabernacle of the lampstand that has seven arms to it. And the lampstand is placed within the holy place. And it was a lamp that was to be tended to by Aaron and the priests. And one of the key characteristics of it is it was a light that was to never go out. Um, and the lampstand was what uh, gave uh, gave light within the tabernacle structure, both day and night, as it says in chapter 27 of Exodus. So there might be some symbolism here. It's not just God meeting Moses in a burning bush or tree, but it might be suggestive of the fact that God never is going to burn out on the, the nation as a whole. And in the tabernacle, there's this lampstand that is always burning. Incidentally, when you fast forward uh, to the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament, a series of events that goes on within the temple there uh, when the nation of Israel was being threatened. We have all heard of uh, Hanukkah, right? The same time as Christmas. Uh, Hanukkah represents um, that the the lights kept burning, representing the uh, in this time of conflict, the presence of God. And even though there was not enough oil to keep them burning as long as it, it, it did, that somehow it miraculously kept burning. And that's why Hanukkah is called the festival of lights. So again, a lot of this later, the, I think that even that kind of echoes Exodus as well. That's why I called this echoes from Exodus because it shows up in a lot of different places. It's quite fascinating. Some, th some thoughts there? Um, just a question. Yeah. yeah. The, the tabernacle was a tent, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. And, and so whenever they moved, the, the tent moved with them. Correct. Mm -hmm. So you had these lights in there, candles. Mm -hmm. So when they had to make a move, um, didn't they have to take the tent down and kind of move everything and then set it up again? Correct. Yep. It seemed like that'd be kind of tricky keeping them lights always candles yeah. always lit yeah yeah exactly yeah um okay so then the question becomes did they mirac miraculously stay lit or was there some type of protocol when they moved the tabernacle to the next location that they followed so um later in the old testament when they moved the ark of the covenant they you'll remember a later story uh, it was to be carried on the shoulders of the priest. Um, and someone said, well, that's too much work. And they decided to put it on a cart. Do you remember the story where the, they're uh, 
transporting uh, the Ark of the Covenant and it begins to fall off and an individual reaches out to steady it so it doesn't fall off. Do you remember that story? And he's judged yeah. because he he touches the Ark of the Covenant and that type of thing. He dies instantly. Yeah, he dies, right. What the protocol is when they are moving the tent of meeting, which is another term for the tabernacle, I'm not sure I know how they did it. But what I do know is whether the light went out or not, at the next location, that would be the very first thing that would have been lit because it was to always represent the presence of God among the people. That Maybe it was like the Olympic torch. Yeah, yeah. You know, just take, right. you have some light, carry it and use that light to light them up again. Right, yeah, that might very much well be. Yeah, that's a good insight. Yeah. Didn't yeah. they also follow the pillar of light at night? Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Right. Yeah. Just. Oh, they're sticking stick the, it in there and, light. and lighting it from that. <laughs> so anyways, um, again, just some fascinating things that you see here in the text. So, so maybe what we have here, okay, echoes of Exodus. As Moses approaches this bush, and I'll put in parentheses tree, uh, it starts talking. Look at verse four, when the Lord saw, uh, saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. So as Moses approaches the bush tree, uh, it starts talking and Moses is told to stand back because he is on holy ground. And it's almost as if Moses is wandering into the presence of God and he's being warned that when you approach God, you need to have more reverence than just kind of walking along and, and stepping into this place. So in ancient Jewish theology, as I put here on the slide, what you have is um, Mount Sinai will maybe be um, this place that then becomes a template for the temple later on. So later the tabernacle will be replaced by the temple. And you remember, not anyone could enter into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest on the Day of Atonement. So you have this very reverent thing that's being set up from the very start where Moses meets uh, God here at Mount Sinai slash Horeb. This will later in the book of Exodus uh, anticipate uh, the holiness that is required um, when the priests go into the tabernacle and approach God uh, to intervene on behalf of the, uh, on behalf of the nation. And, and so uh, Moses is scared to death here. Um, his curiosity turns to fear after God says in verse five, do not come any closer, God said, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, 
the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And this, at this rather, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Moses recognized this is more than a burning bush. This is the very presence of God somehow incarnate in this burning um, tree or bush. So Moses' fear suggests that he might have already heard of this God of the Hebrews. Um, and he recognizes this God demands reverence and demands careful um, approach to his presence. And so then God will get to the point and talk to him and say, you're going to be the leader of these people that are in misery, and I'm going to lead them out. Again, echoes of Exodus. Um, where is it that Eve meets up with the presence of the serpent? It's at a tree. Again, these themes seem to abound in the Old Testament. And what we find is that they repeat themselves in a variety of different ways, some variations, but of the themes tend to come back time and time again. Thoughts? So Moses will object and that we'll kind of finish off uh, tonight with this section. Uh, we'll come back maybe a little bit more to the name in a second. Uh, tradition in other Old Testament passages suggests that seeing God uh, would be too awesome for humans to survive. So we can understand why Moses is fearful. But verse 7 then says, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out, up out of that land into a land that's good and spacious, a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, it already has, has some inhabitants there, though. This is already the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I want you to keep that in mind. Later in the Old Testament, it says to drive out the Canaanites. Uh, later, uh, under Joshua, they're not to allow any of the Canaanites to live, uh, which is interesting because it's not just the Canaanites that live in that land. You see a variety of different people groups there. So what we find here is God has a plan for Moses. And what you'll find as you read through chapter three and four, that Moses objects and he tries to get out of this calling upon his life in a variety of different ways. Uh, actually, no fewer than five times does he object to this calling. And, and I can understand the first of the objections. He has a sense of inadequacy. Um, why would you choose me to do this? I, I can understand that. Um, he doubts his own abilities to be able to pull this off. But uh, God will tell him that he will be with him. What I want you to notice is his objections. Notice these five. Verse 11. 
Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Hey, I'm a fugitive. I killed an Egyptian. I ran away to the desert in Midian. Who am I that, you know, why would you use me? Then he brings up a second objection, verse 13. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? In other words, if there's a God, there's literally a pantheon of gods that are worshipped in the ancient Near East. Which God is calling me to tell the people to be set free? So I don't know your name. I'm not that prepared or uh, qualified. Third one is in verse uh, one of chapter four. Moses answers said, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? What am I to do if they have doubts? Number four, verse 10, he uh, then says, pardon your servant, Lord, he <laughs> becomes apologetic. Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow with speech and tongue. Now, on this objection, what pops into my mind is, is that really true? Or are you making that up, Moses? Think about this for a moment. Moses was raised in the palace of Pharaoh. If he had a speech problem, he had the best uh, people at his disposal uh, to, to train him otherwise. So is this something that Moses is making up or is this, is this really true? Um, either way, God will have an alternate way of approaching this by using Aaron. Number five is in verse 13. But Moses says, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. There it is. There's the bottom line. I don't really want to do this. I don't want to go. I don't want to go have to back. I don't have to want to go back into Pharaoh's court. I don't want to see the people that I saw as I was growing up with. I don't want to walk into the Pharaoh and demand that these people be let go. So there's all kinds of hesitations. He'd rather just live out the rest of his life on the backside of the desert and uh, be a shepherd to these sheeps of his father. So these five objections, I think, begin with legitimate questions. Who am I? Why me? But then it seems as though he begins to squirm and he begins to make up things to try to get over uh, this calling and get past it. But you'll notice what God says. And this is a repeated um, promise that is made all through the scripture. It's not only for Moses, it's for us. And God said, I will be with you. I will be with you. Boy, that's a great phrase. I will be with you. Don't worry. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. I'm going to bring you to this mountain. and I'm going to show myself to you. And when we get to chapter 20, you'll see it's a huge display of God's presence on Mount Horeb Sinai. So 
I don't want to get into the name uh, that's revealed because that's going to take a little bit of time to do that. So I'll I'll come back to that next week. But um, any any thoughts about the objections of Moses as he raises this and tries to get out from under what God is calling him to do? I just love that we have that picture of um, kind of like a kind of a weakling sort of person, and you you know you would think God would surely pick someone that's really strong and yeah. a good leader and you know well everyone will listen to him and everything like that and he's like i'm not i'm not it and you know i think it's such a good picture for us to see yeah, yeah. you know he's a regular old guy that yeah. he has to rely on god for everything so in that's order exactly, to do it that's exactly right that's exactly right God can call and use anyone. In fact, sometimes he uses the most um, ill-prepared or ill-qualified <laughs> type of people to do great things. And uh, that's a testimony to God's grace. And, um, mm -hmm. and so, you know, what we find here, I think, is Moses objecting. And um, yet at the same time, when you think about Moses being the individual as the one person that stands out. He is the first one that noticed that his people were being abused. That's why he kills the Egyptian in the first place. Not, I'm not saying that that was a legitimate response that he had. However, it shows his heart for his people. And maybe that's enough. Because he will intercede on behalf of his people a number of times in, in the uh, Pentateuch. Um, there are times that God just wants to wipe these people out and Moses will intercede just like Abraham interceded for his nephew Lot when Lot was in Sodom. So great points. Okay, great. Uh, others have some thoughts or questions or comments? So what we're going to no, do, think, yeah, go I ahead. Do think, I do think that our view of this is all tainted by the movie <laughs> and Charlton Heston. And, and I mean, I, I, do, I just, yeah. somehow that we've seen that so many times. You, you have to, I think when you read this passage, you have to be somewhere in your mind envisioning, you know, thinking that it's kind of yeah. what it looked like, even though in reality, I obviously did. But it's interesting how movies affect your, yeah, your yeah. perspective. Your perception of things. Yeah. That's, that's one. That's one. You locked up there. Yep. You locked up for a second. What were you saying about the movies okay. being kind of. Well, just we, it's one that we all have seen so many times. It's basically almost ingrained in us. It's, that's the way it happened. And, yeah. and you, you read content, you read. You read the scriptures in that context instead of the movie in the context of the scriptures. Hmm. So it's backwards. Yeah. yeah. Well, you have to. I don't see Nefertiri. Any, anything that's turned into a movie, I don't care if it's the Bible or any other book, there's a lot of liberty that has to go into it to make the plot move in the movie to keep you interested. So there's a lot of liberties that are often taken. You're right. All right. Other thoughts? All right. Well, then we'll close off here and we'll pick up. 
I won't print you a new handout for next week. Okay. So just kind of hold on to the one that you have and uh, we'll finish it, that up next week. Okay. All right. Okay. Have a good night. Thanks, Larry. Thank you. Okay. Have a good week. Bye. Bye-bye. Good night. Good night.